So, it was a week, week ago, two weeks ago, we had a, a couple come to our home, a couple that we met at the park near our house some time back, a uh, lovely couple with kids like us, a francophone woman and a, and a guy from Chile, and he, like myself, was a philosophy major in college. And we just got to talking, told him I was a pastor. He had a bunch of questions about that. Well, how did that come about? And that got my attention because people usually don't care. It's just the notion of, you know, I'm a pastor. Great, let's talk about something else (laughs) is usually how conversations go. But when someone wants to talk about those sorts of things, that gets your attention, you know? And so we made a point of of connecting and praying for this couple and, you know, inviting them over to our home. And last time they were over, last weekend, I think it was, we were talking about various things and I was talking about how the whole Bible fits together. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, which is crazy if you think about it. I come from the United States and I was thinking about it. The the United States is is what, like 250 years old? So the Bible is written over a span six times as long as the U.S. has been around. This is like, it took a long time to write this Bible and what's amazing is how it all fits together. And That's another sermon for another time, but I was talking about that uh, you know, with my friend And I said, apart from my own personal experience, for me, the greatest evidence that the God of the Bible is indeed God, apart from my own experience, that's the greatest evidence I could point to. And he said to me, you said something really interesting there. He said, you use the word evidence. I was like, well, yeah. Yeah, of course I did. He's like, I didn't know that that was a factor for faith. I thought, I thought faith is, you know, religion is about believing things without evidence. And I smiled because, well... I've heard that before. People say that. I read this article real recently. The name of the article was uh, Scientific Faith is Different from Religious Faith. It was in The Atlantic. Uh, Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology, at, you know, down the road at the University of Toronto, kind of down the road. And he said what, what so many people often say. People think this way. You know, science is the pursuit of truth based on research and facts and evidence. On the other hand, faith is believing things without evidence, just because someone told you or tradition. People often think this way. And so you'll have people say things like, I don't, I, I, I don't believe in religion, I believe in science, as if these are two contrasting ways to live our life. Here at Westview, we know that these are not contrasting 
ways of living. In fact, multiple of the people who regularly preach here are scientists by trade. Uh, Basil's got a Wikipedia page. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's, he's a well-known chemist. So we know that science and religion, they don't contrast. They, they complement each other. They, they are both ways of pursuing truth. But there is something a little different. There is something a little different about faith. We are, we are all about evidence, don't get me wrong, but there, there is something different, and that will come out today. But anyways, back to this article that I read um, by Paul Bloom. If anyone is actually connected with the University of Toronto, go ahead and send him this video. Maybe me and him will, will get to talk and have a conversation sometime. I would love that. Sounds like a very interesting fellow. But something he said in the article, he said, Religion has no equivalent record of discovering hidden truths. Comparing it to science. Now, on one hand, I really want to applaud Mr. Bloom, and I want to applaud the mentality that says, we want evidence for what we believe. Like, that is... That's the pursuit of truth, right? We call that integrity. Following where the evidence leads, regardless of the conclusion, that is good. That is to be a seeker of truth. So, you know, kudos to you, Mr. Bloom. But if I could just slightly dissent on what you're saying here in this point, religion has no equivalent record of discovering hidden truths. I actually want to say that's not my experience at all. And that's certainly not the claim, the testimony of the scriptures. Uh, actually, you read things like this. Proverbs 2 says, direct your heart to understanding like looking for hidden treasure. Then you will discover the knowledge of God. Uh, Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek it out. I don't know if you're hearing what, I, what I'm saying here. This religion we have is all about seeking the answers to hidden truths. It's all about seeking hidden truths discovering hidden truths. That's certainly why people give their lives to science, and that's a, that's a great pursuit. Uh, in the same way, we also, we are on a journey of discovering things that are hidden. I begin this way because we're looking at the New Testament book of John, and you're going to see this, John chapter 1. There's a, a, a phrase and a theme that's going to emerge. And it goes like this. Come and see. Come and see. Come and find out. Come and discover. Come and experience evidence. Evidence. Though the way that we are pursuing truth and the way that we are pursuing evidence is different than how a scientist might do so in a lab. It is different. And, and I'll explain that. But yeah, yeah, the, the faith we have is based on evidence. And if you're unclear about that, if you are in a place where you're like, I don't see it, I don't see the evidence, well, there's an invitation that the scriptures will give you. Come and see. You're, you're unsure? 
Come and see. See for yourself. Uh, verse 35, Joanna read it. I'm going to read it again. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And we keep reading, and there's that idea again. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And notice what happens, actually. There's a couple disciples. They start following Jesus because John gave his followers to Jesus. We talked about that last week, if you remember. John's followers started following Jesus. And what did Jesus do when they started following, when they started seeking? What did Jesus do? He turned around. He noticed they were following. He turned around to meet them. Is God aloof? Meaning, is God too busy, too distracted? Is he too above us to pay attention to two little mortals who might follow him? Here's the question I'm getting at. If you... Seek him. Will he ignore you? Will he leave you to your vain attempts of finding truth that is above all of us? Or will he turn around and meet you? He will turn around and meet you. And this is the testimony from from the entirety of the Bible. Uh, Seeking you will find. Seeking you will find. Jesus said this. Really clear, Matthew 7, 7, uh, Psalm 37, 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. First Chronicles 28, 9, David is talking to his son. Uh, this is before he died, giving him instructions in life. And he says something that is repeated in the book of Chronicles. If you seek him, he will be found by you. All who seek, find. If you look for him, if you seek him, Jesus will turn around and you will find him. You don't believe me? Give it a try. But notice something, and this is where I'm going to tell you that here's some of the ways that the pursuit of God, the pursuit of truth in this way is different than the way someone might investigate truth in a lab. They start following Jesus. He turns around and he poses a question to them. A question that is deeper than you may perceive. It's a question that goes and and cuts to the heart. What do you want? What do you want? There's an idea in the scriptures that in the deepest parts of the heart of man, the thing that defines you is your deepest desires, that which drives you in life. What did Jesus say? This is Matthew 6. If your eyes are light, your whole body will be light. But if your eyes are darkness, how great is the darkness? Meaning that's that which you set your eyes on, that which you are focused on. What do you want in life? This is a, this is a deep and, and 
probing question. This is light that shines. What does it say? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Same idea. The Word of God does this. It, it exposes what are our intentions, what are our attitudes, what are our desires. It, it exposes us. We start to turn to Jesus. We start to seek him, and he turns to us, and, 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 it, and it examines us. I say this is different than what you might discover as a scientist in a lab, because when you look in a microscope at a cell, that cell is not looking back at you, is it? It's not looking back at you, probing the depths of your heart, the intentions. That kind of seeking, that kind of searching can be a bit unsettling. Would you agree? And I dare to say, this is the very reason why many of us will never dare take upon the task of seeking out God. We understand that there's there is something looking back at us. And beloved, I want to tell you, I want to tell you this, and this will become more clear as I keep speaking. You'll be accepted by him. Yes, that light is going to probe. That light is going to search the depths and the intentions. It's going to reveal things, perhaps things that you don't even know about yourself. But you'll be accepted if you take upon the task to seek him. Seek him, and he'll be found by you. Come and see. Come and see. I say again, the way that we seek truth, it goes beyond the way a scientist might seek truth. With careful and important research and study and facts and statistics and experiments, it's true that the way we do this is a bit different. That, that may be part of it. There's certainly an academic aspect of theology and the study of God, but what we do does go beyond that. And I can, I can explain this to you in a way that you'll understand, especially if you're married. Uh, husbands, let me, let, me, let me give you a dare, <laughs> if you dare to take it. You want to understand your wife, right? I hope so. I mean, there's a biblical command to do so. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way. Understand her. Anyone who's tried has discovered that's not always easy, right? But we're told to do it, understand her. So you want to understand your wife in obedience with the scriptures? I dare you to do this. Approach it like a scientist. Just perform some experiments. Perform some scientific experiments on your wife and just keep graphs and keep statistics and compare it all. See how that works out for you. You laugh because it won't work out. She's going to get uh, impatient with that really quickly and she's going to say, can you do me a favor and treat me like a person? Okay. Can you stop treating me like just a, a list of numbers and facts? Can you treat me like a person? You understand that. You wouldn't try those things because you understand that. So it is when it comes to seeking God. 
We're not just seeking facts about God. And here's where it does get more personal. This is why scientific research will only get you so far. It becomes personal. We're not only seeking the ways of God, we're seeking the face of God, the person of God. Yeah. Well, once more, that can be rather intimidating. I'm gonna tell you, you can do it. I'm gonna tell you, the door's wide open. You'll be accepted. Keep going, that'll become more clear. You get to verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Back before, when Jesus asked them the question, right? He asked them a question, what do you want? And the answer they gave him was, we want to know where are you staying? That was the right answer. Meaning, we want to spend time with you. We want to to know you. Again, we're seeking the face of God. That's what it means to seek him, to to know him. We 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 want to spend time with you. We want to know where you're staying. And so, Andrew... One of the two who went and spent time with Jesus, upon experiencing Jesus, he's like, I got to go tell my brother. He goes and gets his brother Simon, and Jesus tells Simon, you're going to be called Cephas, which means Peter. You're going to be, your name is going to be Peter. So there's something going on here that... I suppose, depending on how you look at it, it's either good or bad. It's good. But you might be in a place where you don't see it as good. It is good. Uh, Here we see that coming to Jesus means that we are given a new mission in life and a new name. And I'll unpack that. But... You might see this as good if you understand it. You also might see it as bad. It is good, and I want you to see it that way. But let me explain. I have had the conversation before where someone would say something to the tune of, you know, I kind of am interested in giving my life to Jesus, living for him, following him. Kind of, it kind of appeals to me, but I'm also kind of worried that if I do that, he's gonna make me be like a missionary or a pastor or something. And I don't know if I really want that. And someone might say, well, you don't have to worry about something like that. And I would say, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because you're right. If you come to him, He's going to give you a new mission in life. Not maybe, definitely. You will be a missionary. Uh, Will you be a missionary that gets sent to a foreign land? I don't know. But you will be made a missionary. You will be sent out as a missionary. Yes, you came to him, and before you came to him, you had your desires in life. 
Now there's a new desire, a new mission. A new mission is given, and it's the mission that, that Andrew takes upon himself to go and tell others. And also with that mission comes a new name. When Jesus looked at Simon, he said, you will be called Cephas. Interesting, he says, you will. You will. Not yet. <laughs> you know, at, at different times, Jesus still refers to him as Simon. And I think there's something going on there. Simon, uh, let me explain. You might be thinking, oh, you get a new name. At that time, name, your name meant something. It really was your identity. It was who you are. And so coming to Jesus, you receive a new identity, new life in the deepest places, and a new heart. There's so many ways of explaining this. And Jesus looks at Simon, and he says, your name is going to be Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. We live in Pierrefonds. Okay, we're in Pierrefonds. I've, I've been told that uh, Pierre, Pierre is the French Peter, which also means rock. Uh, Fon means bottom. Is that right? And it's called rock bottom because I guess the ground is full of rocks. And that's why my garden didn't do so good last year. But that's besides the point. I digress. Uh, the point is, Peter means rock. And if you know the story of Peter, that name is not yet fitting because Peter is anything but. He's actually all over the place. Is he a steady rock? No. In one moment, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to pull out my sword and, and fight to the death. And then like an hour later, he's like a scaredy cat and he's denying Jesus to a little girl. Uh, he's, he's not Peter. He's not a rock. But Jesus says, you will be. And that's about the new name that we are given. We don't start out this way, but there's an idea of you will be. And that's a, more than we can talk about now, but what I will say, if you set your heart to seeking him, he's going to turn to you, and he's going to change you. Everyone who sees him is changed. Everyone who experiences him is changed. We could talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit, new life, new birth. It means a lot of things, but it definitely means a new name, a new, a new identity. You might be thinking, I don't know, I don't know if being a missionary, being that kind of Christian, that's not me. You're right. It's none of us, but it's what he makes us. The old is gone, the new has come. He makes us new. And so if you're thinking, uh, I don't know about seeking him, I mean, that might, that might really change me. It'll definitely change you. But I want to tell you is it's better. What you'll find is better than what you lose. Uh, seek him, surrender. A seeking him, it, 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 there's an element of surrender, isn't there? To seek God. Oh, that's... That's how it works. We don't seek God as if we're in control, do we? This is another one of those reasons why people don't really want to do it. There's something very humbling about seeking one who is greater than you. Well, let's keep going. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. 
Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come, out, come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Okay, first, a little bit of play on words, a little bit of, of kind of just uh, irony going on in the text. It says in verse 45 uh, that... Jesus found Philip, you know, they, they left for Galilee. Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. Philip goes and finds Nathanael and says, we have found, so there's this, this, the word find, 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 and Philip says, we have found the one Moses wrote about, the, the Messiah. We found Jesus, but a verse before that, it said Jesus was the one who found Philip, and there's kind of this question being posed, like, who's really finding who? Who's really seeking who? Who is finding who in this story? Is, uh, are the disciples finding Jesus, or is Jesus finding the disciples? Did, did you find Jesus? Sometimes people will, will, will say that, like, like, you found Jesus, or I found Jesus. Did, did you find Jesus, or did Jesus find you? Uh, answering this question, one commentator, I thought this was amusing, he said, Jesus wasn't the one who was lost, <laughs> you know? Jesus wasn't the one who was lost. He came to seek that, that which was lost. Um, Jesus is the one finding us. I, I'm telling you, like, look for him. Seek him. Seek him and you will find him. But above all of that, Jesus is the one seeking us. This becomes more clear as we keep reading the book of John. Eventually, we're going to get to John chapter 6. Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless my Father draws him. Let me say it this way. Seeking God in spirit and truth, seeking him, seeking the face of God, is pretty much the most unnatural thing that a sinner can do. To seek the face of God as a sinner do criminals look for policemen? <laughs> Usually not. Here's the point. And this also becomes clear when we get to John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wills. You don't see it, but you see the effects of it. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wills. Suddenly, a sinner is interested in seeking the face of God? That is the work of God. That is the work of God of finding us. If, if you have a heart that wants to know him, praise God. Something miraculous is taking place. The wind is blowing where it wills. Uh, Jesus is finding sinners. Um, we're going to leave that there. More on that perhaps another time. Um, so, okay, so Philip finds Nathaniel. We found the one that the, the, that, that the scriptures speak of, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel, Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? The book of John begins, similar to the way it ends, where you have a doubter. Okay, it ends with Thomas is doubting, Nathaniel's doubting. Nazareth, anything good come from Nazareth? 
I mean, he, maybe he's saying this in part because he knew the Old Testament prophecies where the Messiah is supposed to come from the city of David, Bethlehem. We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then they moved you. He, he was brought up in Nazareth. Regardless, what we have here with Nathaniel is he's a doubter, right? He has his doubts. He's skeptical. Maybe he has good reason for doubting. Maybe everyone he knows from Nazareth was not so nice. I don't know. He's got some doubts. And Philip responds to those doubts, but not in the way that you might expect. Philip does not go through a complicated set of arguments for why the Messiah could come from Nazareth. Here's my point. You familiar with the term apologetics, where we try to make arguments for our faith in logical ways, arguments for the existence of God, arguments for the resurrection of Jesus, and apologetics have their place, don't get me wrong. You'll see me engage with that line of thought from here, here, here and there. But apologetics isn't what Philip uses in this instance when encountering this doubter. Instead of presenting arguments, he, he more tries to make an introduction. You have your doubts? Well, come and see. Beloved, sometimes when you're talking with someone and they have their questions, they have their doubts, sometimes you don't have to like respond to all those doubts. You can just give that invitation. Like you're unsure, you have doubts, look for him, okay? <laughs> You'll find him. You're not sure? You're not sure if Jesus is the son of God who lives and is calling all men to himself? All men, all women, wherever you are, whoever you are, he's calling you, you're not sure? Look for him, okay? Because he's there to be found. All who seek, find. Give this invitation. You guys remember that TV show, Reading Rainbow, if you're old enough? Don't take my word for it. Okay? Go look for him. Come and see. That, that's, what, that's all Philip says. You're not sure? Come and see. Okay? You have your doubts? Let's go find out. Let's go find out together. Well, uh, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, so Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Remember Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, you're the Son of God. Now, I don't know what happened under the fig tree with Nathaniel, but it sounds like that was a moment for Nathaniel. I suspect it was a moment in Nathaniel's life where he began seeking God. I suspect he was under a fig tree one day when he 
perhaps found himself under circumstances he could not control, things that seemed to get worse and worse, and he had a moment where he just said, God, are you real? God, are you there? Is anyone even listening to me? Are there any, is there any reason for me to pray? Is anyone even answering? God, where are you? I suspect that Nathaniel had some sort of moment like that under the fig tree where he just cried out to God. And here Jesus says, I saw you. I saw that. Nathaniel says, you are him. And Jesus, very interestingly, he says to Nathaniel, when, when he sees Nathaniel coming, he says, ah, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. <coughs> That's weird. What, did what warrants Nathaniel to have no deceit? Why is Jesus impressed with Nathaniel in this moment? There's only one thing Nathaniel did. And it's really the difference between life and death. When given the invitation, come and see, Nathaniel took it. When given the invitation to seek him, Nathaniel was willing. He was willing to give it a try. And beloved, what we see in the scriptures is there is this expectation upon us to look for him, to seek him. And, uh, back what, what David said to his son Solomon that I referenced earlier, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And there's this idea that there's a calling, there's a command to seek him. Um, Psalm 10 verse 4 says, in his pride, the wicked do not seek God. Uh, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 say the Lord looked down on humanity to see if there is anyone who seeks God. There's this idea that righteousness and wickedness is really defined by will you seek him or will you live in darkness? Are you willing? Are you willing to open your heart to find is this really the truth? I said in the beginning, this is integrity, the pursuit of truth following the evidence wherever it leads. Now, when it comes to seeking God, yes, the way we do it is different. I mean, you can get some books and you can read on the subject. You can listen to philosophers. You can listen to scientists. You can listen to all that. But when it comes to seeking God, what am I talking about? It's very, very simple. It's not complicated at all. First, You pray. <laughs> it's like the, the most obvious thing ever. If God is, if God is alive, if God is God, every thought on our mind, every hair on our head, he's aware of. And you want to find him. You want to experience him. Obviously, the first step is, Lord, I want to find you. Are you real? Come into my life. That's, that's how you do it. It's, it's coming into the light. It's letting the light shine upon you. Letting the light do its work. And I understand. I understand it's intimidating. That light that exposes. Exposes the secret thoughts and tensions of our heart. The scripture ends, 
Jesus, Jesus says, you're gonna see heaven open, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's, he's referencing something in the very beginning of the Bible. And this is again back when I was saying the whole Bible fits together in ways that I don't have time to get into right now. But in the beginning of the Bible, Jacob has this encounter. Jacob, one of the patriarchs. Jacob does like the worst thing that someone could do. He dishonors his father in, in, a, in, a, in a really significant way. He dishonors his family at a time when like family honor and honoring the father was like so paramount. Uh, Jacob just gives in to deception and he, his name means deceiver and that's exactly what he is. And so he does like the worst thing he could possibly do. And that's when God finds him. Not at his best, at his worst. And he has this vision that for, that for millennia plus, no one really knew what it meant. He had a vision. He saw a ladder and angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And Jesus is saying here, that's me. It, it was always me. I've always been the ladder. Perhaps you've heard of Jacob's ladder. That's me. The, the bridge between heaven and earth, the bridge between sinners and God, it's me. I'm the one. And notice, he doesn't come to us at our best. He comes to us at our worst. We're all at our worst when posed with this question, will you seek him? We're all living in darkness. But there's an invitation right where you are. Come. You'll be accepted. Nathaniel, accepted with, with open arms. Come into the light. And, and, and here's what I'm going to leave you with. This. Jesus said to Nathaniel, you believe because I, I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things. And let me explain you how this works. And a lot of you guys know this already because you've walked it. Let me explain to this how this works. There's this invitation, come and see. Look for him, seek him. Now if you do it, if you take the invitation, you're going to see him. You're going to experience him. But with it is going to come this promise. You're going to see a lot more. Whatever you've seen, whatever you've experienced, you're going to see greater things. Didn't I tell you that if you believe you'd see the glory of God? We're being renewed day by day. We're being changed. We're being transformed day by day by seeing and experiencing more and more glory, more and more of Jesus. The more that we see him, the more that we're transformed like him. My great exhortation to you is come along. Come and see. Come along on this journey. And if you've been walking with him for some time, this is just a reminder. Keep looking for him. Keep looking for his face. Don't be satisfied with where you're at in your Christian walk. Look for more of him. Pursue him. Seek him. He's going to meet you. He's going to turn around. He's going to meet you. You're going to experience him. You're going to see. And you're going to be changed. Father God, stir in us this desire 
to seek you. Give us all the tools we need to seek you. Lead us to the right scriptures that help us discover you. Lead us to the right people, the right relationships. And ultimately, Lord, turn to us, Lord. As we seek you, come and find us, Lord. And let us see, let us experience. And then send us out to tell others with this message, come and see, come and see. Lord, let us be a church. Let us be a church that sings and cries out this message. Sinners, come and see. Let us be a people who see, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to move into a time of Q&A. If you have a question for Pastor Charlie, there is a number on the screen that you can text to, or if you're in the room, just raise your hand, and uh, we'd love to, love to respond to your question. Any questions in the room just yet? Oh, we got one right up front here, and just as you're on your way, I'm, I'm going to read a, a question that we have from the text line. So, Charlie, how can parents teach slash help kids to listen to God's voice? How can kids know they indeed are hearing God's voice? Well, you know, when I think of this task of bringing children to God, I want to tell you that it starts with something bigger and more important than the how-to. I think it starts with us having hearts that seek God and pray for our children. Because the honest answer to that question is, I don't know. (laughs) In the sense of like, how do we point our children at God? I mean, I I got, don't get me wrong, I, I get it. I mean, there's, we can read the Bible, we can pray with them, we can do all those things. But if you've tried those things, and a lot of times you see that there's resistance or there's uninterest or kids are distracted or you're distracted or it turns into a crying fit or, or, or what, you know? You found that there is no silver bullet of turning your children Christian, okay? I mean, you can do a lot of the obvious things, bring them to Sunday school, you know, watch The Chosen together, which is a great show, by the way. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. But I think it really starts with acknowledging what we can't do. And the wind blows where it wills, you know. So I say the most important thing we can do as parents is praying, God, work in my child's life. God, give me the tools, the wisdom that I need. Help me know Help me do this. Um, So make sure that your face is set towards God, you know, as you consider how to minister to your children. Awesome. Right on. So we'll go with the question right here. Good morning. I would like to know when you're talking to people and it goes into the science or the evidence or the proof, when, at what point do you feel we should stop and say, come and see, instead of going through the conversation and answering point for point and evidence and so on. You know, when it comes to talking to people who aren't believers about God, I think that is the time, at least in my life, and I think this is 
pretty normal. Like, that's the time more than ever that we really just rely on the Spirit. Like, in the moment, there is not, like, really a formula of, like, well, here's where I'm going to dive into a long conversation about the facts. Here's where I'm just going to kind of say, go and discover it, you know. Um, But I think uh, that's kind of what needs to be the big message. The big message is not, look at the facts and agree with me that, that the evidence supports, you know, Jesus. The big thing that we're trying to do is to say, go and meet him. Like, it's a relationship. We're trying to point people to the relationship, not to just the, the facts of evidence. We're trying to encourage people to go and discover the person. Like, that's the main thrust of what we're trying to do. So hopefully that answers the question. Wonderful. Any other questions in the room? Okay, I'm going to take another text question. So I cannot help but doubt the process of sanctification when I see no real progress as I walk with Jesus. I fail continuously to change, and I am haunted by the usual pitfalls. I am frustrated and discouraged. When I call out to God, is it all just a performance, or is the Spirit in me? So sanctification, for those who don't know, that's the process of becoming more like Jesus, the the process of being more holy, and this feeling of like, Sometimes I feel like I'm just not changing fast enough. Well, take heart because God finishes what he starts. Jacob is given this vision. Jacob is given this vision of the ladder in heaven, and he's given that vision at the time of his worst. And it's going to be a long time before Jacob once again sees God face to face and wrestles and is given this name, Israel, the one who overcomes. God has to do a lot of work in his life. Uh, 20 years, I think it is. Um, there's a, God, is, God is at work. And yeah, I understand the feeling of like, hey, I want things to happen faster. I have a garden. And as much as I stare at it, It just goes slower than I want it to go. But I have to trust that God is the one who's working. I'll give it water. I'll give it sunlight. It's all I really know how to do. Um, But I have to trust that he's going to bring forth the fruit in his timing. Take heart. Keep looking to the promise. He's... Those he... Those he... uh, How does it it go? To those he... (laughs) sanctified, glorified. Uh, those, those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he... Come on, Ryan. <laughs> he sanctified, he glorified. Here's the point. Everyone who begins ends with glory. That, that's, that's the line of thought in Romans 8. Go look it up for yourself. Those he calls, he justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. There's not like some only get two steps and then... They, they, they drop off. No, no, no. Those he begins with, it ends with glory. So take heart and rejoice. I, I see how you subtly shifted that to me not knowing the verse. That was, that was yeah. good. That was great. Come on, Ryan. <laughs> um, another great scripture. 
Uh, uh, Philippians 1.6, I think it is, right, that, uh, that he is faithful, right, to complete the work that he starts in us. I mean, that's a really go. loose paraphrase, but it makes me think of how I, I've seen in uh, at least one psalm where the same word that's translated into hope is also translated into wait, and there's, and, and there's this idea of like waiting on the Lord and trusting in his promises and, and hoping in him. It's a form of worship, um, trusting in his promises. So I think that that's another really helpful promise of God to hold to as well. Yep. You know? Any other questions in the room? All right. It's going to be a short one today. That's fine. That's all good. That's all good. Uh, let, me, let me close us in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are faithful to fill every single one of your promises to us. Lord, that even in our most difficult times when we feel that we don't see you, when we're discouraged with our progress, Lord, we can hold to the fact that you are working in us and that you are faithful to complete the work that you started in us and that your love and goodness pursues us every day of our lives and that we will dwell in your house forever. Lord, there's, there's no greater hope than that than to know that we're yours. So we just pray, Lord, that you would give us that hope today. Remind us that we're yours. Remind us, of, uh, remind us of the fact that our sanctification doesn't depend on us, but depends on your goodness. And we, we just pray that you'd give us hearts that are, um, that are humble, that are surrendered to you, hearts that seek you, Lord. And uh, just give us joy in that pursuit as well. Would you give us great joy and a great hunger and thirst for more of you, Lord God. And let us rejoice to give you thanks each step of the way that you're faithful to meet us wherever we're at. We just, uh, we honor you, Lord. We bless you. And uh, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.